You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science. And the subject of the experiment is himself. Ask him what kind of an experience I can expect. What happens during these blackout periods is you get the feeling of phenomenal acceleration, like you're being shot out over millions, billions of years. Time simply obliterates. You guys are shooting up with an untested drug that stacks up in the brain and works in the nucleus of the cell, and you don't call that dangerous. Now, I'm asking you to put the experiment off until we understand a little more in order to minimize the risk. I'm really frightened. We could be screwing around with this whole genetic structure. Now, how do we stop this? We've got millions of years stored away in that computer bank we call our minds. We have got trillions of dormant genes in us. Our whole evolutionary past. Perhaps I've tapped into that. He may be on to something that is beyond our own comprehension. Now, because I believe him, I want this thing stopped. The hell is that? You okay? If you love me, if you love me, Eddie, get fired! Altered States. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, Mr. Rob St. Mary. I've been drowned in the think tank. Also with us this week from the Married with Clickers podcast is Mr. Scott Clickers. Do you guys know which wine to serve with Lizard? This week, we're looking at the 1980 film from Ken Russell, Altered States. Based on the book by and adapted for the screen by Patty Chayefsky, the film tells the tale of Edward Jessup, a scientist who's looking for answers to some of the big questions of life, memories, spirituality, and more. He meets, marries, divorces, and reconciles with Emily over the course of a decade of study, where he ingests some questionable substances while subjecting himself to sensory deprivation. Here, Eddie finds a way to travel back in time through his body's own chemistry to the days of primeval man. Scott, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Altered States, and what did you think? You know, if memory serves, it would have been on um, one of those ABC Sunday or Friday night movie of the week. Let's say circa 1982, 83 on our – I'm in Toronto. This was would have been the Buffalo affiliate WKBW. Really anxious to see it. I'd seen you know it on the cover of a lot of science fiction, horror magazines, probably 10 years old at the time, and it was way over my head. Plus, it was edited, so a lot of the uh, the good stuff uh, wasn't necessarily in there, too. So I was more confused and confounded than anything initially. I never saw it because I remember seeing the poster, which is uh, sort of this, I guess, sepia-toned uh, brownish photo of William Hurt upside down. And I remember just looking at the box cover and going, I don't know what this is, and uh, never, never watched it. I, I should have watched it. 
because I've seen you know a decent amount of Ken Russell films, and as you know, big fan of The Devils, and you can listen to that episode in our archive. But I just never got around to uh, watching Altered States until I saw it for the show. And I have to say that uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that I find interesting and uh, relates to other people's uh, stand-up comedy, writing, different things that I've read in the past, and uh, hope to uh, talk to you guys about some of that stuff on top of the film itself. I can't wait to hear how stand-up comedy plays into altered states. I'm anxious. There you go. I remember seeing trailers, probably like TV promos, kind of like you, Scott, for this movie. I was not brave enough to watch it, though, because something about the trailers just scared the bejesus out of me. I don't know if it was that little hairy man running down the street with the dogs chasing after him or him chasing the dogs or what it was, but something about this movie kept me away. And then much to your point, Rob, when it was out on video, at least at the Blockbuster where I worked, it was one of those old Warner Brothers tapes. I think they were usually green and black, and they would just have a single picture from the movie on the cover. And it was this terrible picture of William Hurt with all these electrodes all over his head. It wasn't the poster image. It was just like a still from the film. And he's in this tank of water. And I'm like, okay, not really compelling me. And so I wasn't really into it. The only thing I really knew about the film going into it was that Drew Barrymore was in it. And that was about it. And then I finally watched this one couple years ago and really enjoyed it and it stuck with me and then as we were talking about Simon a couple years ago I said to myself we really need to talk about Altered States because that's kind of the uh, the other side of the coin from Simon but because of the whole sensory deprivation thing and one using it for comedy and the other one using it for such a super serious film. I, I think with with me with a lot of movies of that period, I ended up I think I ended up reading either the Mad or Cracked parody before I saw the film, and that's always a strange way to go into something. Seeing all the flaws and stuff pointed out, or having it made ridiculous. Yeah, for sure. Really, it only has like four sensory deprivation type scenes, if memory serves. We start off in the tank, and we've got William Hurt in there, and he's just kind of floating around doing some experimenting. And his good buddy, Arthur Rosenberg, who's played by Bob Balaban, is out there helping him. And over the course of the film, like I said in the intro, Eddie Jessup meets up with Emily, who's played by Blair Brown, the incredible Blair Brown. And they fall in love, they have their little courtship, though he is really kind of far removed from the rest of the world. And he doesn't even necessarily know if he knows what love is, because he's such this cerebral kind of weirdo guy. I almost get the feeling that the Jessup character today, if we were going to sit him down, he's somewhere on the autism spectrum. I almost kind of feel like he's incapable of any type of uh, empathy with people at times and especially with this woman that he's with with emily i mean it just sort of seems like she's really into him but he's like well i guess if you wanna it's just he doesn't really seem to engage with her all that well and you and you start to feel like either she's an idiot or he's abusive emotionally in some way or it's a combination of the two together and he's got that line in there about she would rather you know deal with the pain of us together as opposed to the pain we inflict on ourselves when we're alone or something like that. And I'm just like, Jesus. I'm like, that's a that's a beautiful, beautiful statement on the state of relationships. Thank you, sir. She could do much better. 
definitely could do much better. But something about him is just she cannot not be with him. And there's parts in the book. This was based on Chayefsky's book. I went back and read that. And there's parts in the book where she's just so distraught without him and all this and, you know, thinking about him all the time. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I don't get it. I mean, William Hurt. He's pretty handsome in this movie. He's nothing, you know, spectacular. He's no Christopher Reeve or anything. And yeah, his personality isn't, you know, all that either. And when they make love for the first time, he's having all these bizarro visions that really rival anything that he's going to see in the tank. All this stuff about crucifixions and this seven-eyed lamb and slaughtering and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like... I really would rather have somebody a little bit more engaged with me than having all these visions. And he's very forthright with her uh, as far as he used to have all these spiritual visions and then immediately stopped when his father died. And his father basically saw the end of his life as being this horrible, horrible experience. And he said, okay, that's it. I'm done with God. But God's not done with him, especially when he's having sex. What are you thinking about? God. Jesus, crucifixions. As a rule, do you usually think about Christ and crucifixions under sexual stress? I find it interesting that they did touch on the fact that he'd had a history of these sorts of visions before, prior to any sort of taking hallucinogenics or, or sensory de- deprivation tanks. Uh, but I didn't feel like Shayevsky uh, followed that too much, enough of it. And and I get the sense that you know I, the, the older I get, and the more I as I watch this film as an older person, and ha- knowing some academics, I see this sort of the way academics are, and maybe it's the way some of them have disdain for the rest of the world, and that's how Jessup's character uh, seems to me t- to a degree, and I, I can see some younger academics sort of being drawn to that, but they never have that sort of he's an academic superstar with everyone in the class, you know, in love with him. Uh, sort of scene, which I would almost expect. Uh, granted, they did have the one with the young co-ed in bed with him at one point. But that's sort of the scene I would think they would use to show us all that Jessup really is the man. Neo, meaning new and lithic. I-T-H-I-C, meaning stone. All right, let's get back to this site. Turk Dean Barrow near Hazleton. Pretty much everybody in this movie is... To your point, Rob, as far as the autism scale, everybody's on the misanthropic scale at some point. You know, even I would say Emily isn't necessarily the the person that you want to be hanging around with all the time if she is letting somebody like Jessup into her life. You know, but like Rosenberg and later on Mason Parrish, I mean, they all are kind of quirky. But I would definitely say that Eddie's the the quirkiest of them all. And yeah, it is weird that we never. Like he seems like he's a professor, but without doing any teaching. It's like he's just there for pure research or something. It's like the beginning of Ghostbusters, where they're just doing this research, and it's like you know, when we're in the university, we didn't have to do anything; we just do research, you know. And now we're kicked out of the university, and now we got to like figure it out. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. The thing that I find interesting in here as a thematic uh, for me is this, of course, lives in that era that I always talk about on the show as, you know, the great era of last great era of American filmmaking, as far as I was concerned, from like the late 60s to the early 80s. And this fits in with and I'm 
trying to remember which episodes we've done where we talked about sort of the um, the new aginess of the 70s. Well, we definitely talked about it on the Howling, and then, of course, with our Scientology episodes, we've talked about that quite a bit. Yeah, it was the Howling. And for me, this movie is, even though it starts in the, in the late 60s, or we're led to believe it starts in the late 60s and runs till probably late 70s, you know, contemporary time when the film was made, I really get the feeling that this is more about people looking at the 80s coming on in going, what are we doing with ourselves? Because the whole sort of like Vietnam era, the whole like Watergate thing, like all of the 70s kind of stuff, the whole general malaise of the 70s kind of stuff, and just looking at the 80s and going, we've, and he even has a line in there. It's like, we've thrown over God, we're, we've got rid of that, we've got rid of this, we've got rid of this. The only thing left is to go into ourselves. That's all we have now. And... That's the thing that that I find interesting is the film really is talking about that kind of contemporary issue, which which I think is always kind of with us. But it really kind of felt like after kind of 15 years of brutality from, you know, Vietnam on to 1980, that's why you got the whole, you know, it's morning in America ad campaign with Reagan, which we've talked about before, where people are like, it's time for a rebirth. It's time to go back to the conservative nuclear family of the 50s when everything was much easier and everybody knew their place and all of that stuff. And you have these folks who are going, I, I need to connect with something. I need to find something. There has to be more than this. I don't think that they could make an altered states today with the ease of use that they ingest hallucinogens. It just seems so matter of fact with the way that not only is Jessup looking for a he's looking for a way to unlock those for lack of a better term, doors of perception. And he definitely is trying so many different routes. And one of those keys for him is this drug that he finds when he goes on this sojourn down to Mexico and is there with these Indians and they go through this whole ritual and he has no problem with taking that back to the laboratory, synthesizing it and using that as his primary gateway into this other world, into this way that he regresses. And I don't know if we would be able to handle that today. I don't know if the audiences today would be able to handle a main character who has to pop these pills or ingest this drug in order to, you know, function basically. Now it's like, oh, he's substance addicted. <laughs> and we would just like kind of, you know, look down our nose at him. But coming out of this 60s to 70s era, I don't think that there was an issue whatsoever. Well, the other thing that's interesting is in that party scene in the beginning, you have the Doors playing, which the Doors took their name from the Aldous Huxley book, The Doors of Perception, which is a reference to William Blake. And the complete quote is, if paraphrasing, uh, if mankind, if the Doors of Perception were cleansed, then mankind would see the world as it truly is, infinite. So there's all of this stuff that comes through that way. And the thing that's interesting in that party scene is you have people using, I guess, socially acceptable ways to alter their consciousness. Uh, they're drinking, there's pot smoking, but it's just in the background. And to use a track by the doors in there, I think is another way of Russell going, see, 
everyone does this. Everyone's trying to twist the reality a little bit. It's just this guy's taking it like 50 steps further. They introduced this idea of schizophrenia at one point and uh, fairly early on in the movie. And they're talking about what happens to a schizophrenic's brain when they go into kind of one of these religious revelries. And they, I don't know, they kind of skirt around some things. There's a lot of talking in this movie. They talk to each other so much as they're going through things, they're explaining things. If you're not paying a lot of attention to this film, you can miss stuff very easily. But they're talking about schizophrenia and is it a disorder? Is it that schizophrenics view the world differently? Is it that they are different you know, in their body chemistry, their, their calibration, this kind of stuff? But unfortunately, I think that that's one of those things that they just kind of drop a little bit too easily as they're going through this and they to me like uh you were saying scott as far as the dropping the religious thing a little bit too easily in the beginning it's like jessup kind of has this huge thing from his past where he had these visions and he was kind of like this wunderkind and you know people were like oh you know eddie jessup he sees these visions and stuff and they just yeah it's like you can't have that as your character's past and then just not really explore it that much. And it feels like they kind of do the same thing with the schizophrenia kind of idea. And it feels like as they go through this movie, they're kind of picking up ideas and then maybe putting them by the wayside a little bit. And it isn't until they get into, well, there's the constant theme of the love story. I think that's what ties the whole film together. And the other thing is when they start to do the idea of the regression that Eddie is able to, by taking this combination of this Mexican drug and this uh, sensory deprivation tank, by having those two things together, he's able to physically either transform himself or transport himself into this other realm. There's some interesting stuff going on that we don't see inside the tank, which I appreciate that we don't see it. And we are constantly left guessing as to, is Eddie crazy or is this actually happening? Like when he is in the tank at one point, he's describing hunting on the Savannah and killing this goat and eating it. And when he comes out of the tank, he's got blood all over his mouth. So was he literally in that place or was it a strong hallucination or what was it? But I like that storyline as we go through, but that one feels almost a little abrupt the way that they start that story. And then that's what takes us through to the end of the film. You know, Mike, it's interesting what you're saying about sort of dropping different storylines and maybe some half-baked ideas here. And I don't know, you know, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if they're dealt with more there, but I, I almost wonder if the intention was that this was really sort of the scientific approach and the, you know, there are all these other hypotheses out there that are just ultimately left behind, and we go through this one central idea. If that was the case, maybe that you know that's what we were doing here, but it was never really explained in some way. So they just do feel like sort of tangents that probably could have been le- left on the cutting room floor. The book, I will say, is very, very similar to the movie. Uh, the book is only about... I want to say 170 pages, something like that. So it's not a real thick book. And Chayefsky uh, adapted it for the screen and really kept so much of it. I mean, he has a voiceover at the beginning with a little bit more, though Rosenberg does pick up that voiceover. And we do get just a touch of Rosenberg doing a voiceover at the beginning, which never comes back in the film. 
what you're saying, Scott, as far as the idea of the scientific method and stuff, and there is kind of that, but it isn't necessarily like you don't see things building upon one another. So it is much more of a try and discard, try and discard, rather than this research leads to this, and then this part leads to this other thing. There's not necessarily an ABC-type relationship. It's more of an A goes away, A goes away, and then finally we begin with another fresh letter A about midway through the film. But I would say definitely that the film is fairly, if not very, faithful to the screenplay, which is hilarious because there were huge fights about the screenplay. And then when you look at the movie, it's not you know, written by Paddy Chayefsky. It's written by a pseudonym of Paddy Chayefsky. So he took his name off of the movie. He wanted nothing to do with this film, which in the end, I think, and he would say that I'm wrong, I think is very similar to his book. It may just be the visuals that he didn't agree with. You know, the idea of some of these trips that he goes on are pretty outlandish. And it's Ken Russell. So <laughs> you kind of expect that. At the same time, uh, these sort of threads, as you were talking about, where they go down one path and then they drop it and then they move on to something else. I didn't really have a problem with that because to me, I saw it as just a constant search. And it just reiterates that whole idea of what I was talking about earlier, that everyone's searching for this answer. They're looking for something. They don't know what the hell they're looking for exactly uh, in a particular way or how they're going to get there. But they're just ingesting handfuls of pills. They're putting themselves in tanks. They're, you know, they're, they're talking to shaman. They're doing all of these different things in order to try and get to the place that they want to get to. Yeah, and what I find to be kind of funny is, you know, I've talked about how the love story is really what ties the whole film together. And we get the, you know, let's get married, even though he isn't really into it, but okay, we'll get married. And then we get the divorce being revealed to us really kind of off the cuff at one point. You know, it's one of these conversations that Rosenberg and his wife are having. And again, if you're not paying attention, you're not going to pick up on it immediately. And then they are split apart for a while. And then this reconciliation when she comes back from Africa and he has kind of gone into some dangerous territory and this character Mason Parrish, who's played by Charles Hayde, has kind of told her some of the things that have been going on. And then it's really love at the end of the day, which is what saves the day. I mean, it, without her love, he would be lost. And I think that's kind of a nice thing that we have this story going on underneath, which really could have, if for all intents and purposes, that could have ended up on the cutting room floor. You know, like, why are we spending so much time with this relationship when I really am curious about what's going on in the tank is what some people could say. But the relationship is really the only steady thing that we have in the film. And it's what ultimately is his savior is the love of Emily for him. I, th I think that's very true. And especially if you take a character like Jessup and then the way Hurt plays him, he is so cool, cold and distant that it's so important to have somebody grounding him. He's got to have some linkage to reality. That's the only way the audience can almost relate to him on, a, on any level. The other sort of parallels that I saw in here to, to classical stories that we may know is I sort of felt like Faust in some way that although he wasn't making a bargain with Mephistopheles, he was making a bargain with his 
consciousness. He was making a bargain with his perception of the world. He was making a bargain with, you know, his humanity. He was making a bargain with all of these intangible objects of himself and pushing those. Um, I also wrote down in my notes sort of like, like, like a Frankenstein of the psyche idea. You know, he's going in and he's manipulating all of these different things in his psyche in order to try and come out with something new. And what kind of price is he willing to pay in order to, to push himself into those places? Years ago, there was going to be a remake of Planet of the Apes. And Planet of the Apes, how are we going to get the human to the Planet of the Apes? That's the first hurdle that you have to jump over when you're doing a remake of the Planet of the Apes. And in one of the drafts, I can't remember if it was Terry Hayes or who wrote this version, but they used... Basically, it was the regression through time, very much like the way that they regress Hurt when he is out hunting on the savannah before he becomes the little monkey man kind of guy, but the way that he's able to kind of travel through time through his own DNA memory kind of thing, and they send our you know, fateful... Um, scientist, astronaut, whatever you want to call him, our main character, back in time through this kind of mitochondrial regression kind of thing, which I found to be very clever. But then when I was watching Altered States again, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, well, this is probably where they got the idea for that. But I like this whole idea that at times it's it feels like it's Eddie who's out on the savannah, and then at other times he's actually physically changing. And I think the scariest moment for me is when he's not in the tank and you see his body start to change. And they've got those kind of cool effects of his skin rippling. And then, of course, when he goes into the shower and he looks down and he sees that he has these big, like, gorilla feet, I don't know. I always crack up at that, but it's also kind of freaky as well. I was happy to see in the credits that it was the great Dick Smith who sadly passed away recently and was one of, you know, the big makeup guys. I think he, he did what the exorcist and taxi driver and, and all of those. And I mean, for 1980, those effects are really good. I mean, a lot of people will point to something like uh, American werewolf in London and go, wow, you know, Rick Baker and all that stuff. But, but this is, this is on par. I mean, um, and then at the same time, I was often questioning, does he actually physically transform, or is this his perception of himself? The only thing that is kind of a – that one could debate that he actually does physically transform is in the building where the security guard and the other guy are trying to hunt him down, and he's sort of climbing through the, the pipes and all that stuff in the boiler room. So I guess if other people saw it, then, then it happened, but – like you were saying with the feet, it made me question that maybe he didn't change. Maybe it was his perception of his own physical nature that was changed. Right. Though I do like that he changes at one point when he comes out of the tank and he can't talk anymore. And it really clarified it for me when I read the book a little bit more than what I saw in the film. But then watching the film again, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a little bit more clear than I thought. He uh, can only write down, and he insists on getting his throat x-rayed because he wants that before he uh, reconstitutes. So he gets his throat x-rayed, 
by a uh, very young John Larroquette, which was great. And then he gets his x-rays looked at by the uh, captain from the Police Academy movies. So I was very happy about that, too. (laughs) So who also he was also in a a sitcom, too, but I can't remember which one. If it was it wasn't give me a break. I don't know which one it was. But so, yeah, he's actually regressed so much that he's physically changed. His throat has kind of gone back to more of like a like the shape in of a uh, baboon's throat and he can like at points uh when he's in the tank he roars like a baboon which is great because emily's been over in africa studying baboons which is is a nice coincidence but so it's cool that he is kind of doing that and then being able to reconstitute and it's funny rob that you brought up american world in london because whenever that zoo scene takes place i always picture David waking up the next day after he's gone into the zoo in London and, you know, with the whole thing with the balloon and the little girl's coat and all that kind of stuff is what I picture Jessup having to do if he hadn't been caught by the police. That that scene where he's where he comes out and needs the X-ray. I mean, that is a very might be for me the most effective sequence in the entire film. Um, I, I just think it's fantastic, and it, to me, that's almost the most frightening because you can see the fright. His two colleagues are very, very frightened on his behalf when they they open it up, and he just has this shocked look and the blood in his mouth. It's wonderful. Yeah, and for the record, I probably should know this, but uh, it was Punky Brewster. George Gaines was on. Thank you. <laughs> I think I he was, was actually, something. Wasn't on, well, I thought I thought I think he was on the show that Blair Brown did too. Molly Dodd, that one. I think he was on that one too. Well, you are fond of information. Rob, originally it wasn't Dick Smith who was supposed to be doing the makeup on this movie. It was supposed to be John Dykstra, and Dick Smith kind of came in last minute, which makes his effects even more astounding that he was able to pull this off. And I like that he's not, you know, that this movie isn't just the physical effects, but you actually have like early kind of computer animation kind of things, like when Jessup is pounding the wall at one point when his body is transforming without his consent and he's changing colors and stuff. That is a pretty cool scene. I uh, really enjoy that. And when he turns into Lyle from Basket Case at one point, I was just like, ooh, that's kind of cool too. Well, it's kind of, uh, what is it? Was it chroma key or green screen or something like that? Is Because isn't there a scene where uh, I, I thought, I go oh, well, he's going to become Max Headroom or something because it looks like television <laughs> static and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I was like, that's interesting, you know, to use this like early TV and, and, and things like that in the, in the effects. And then all of the, um, when you talk about those, uh, those trips, like the, the, the trip in Mexico and then, um, the, the sex one and then the, the one in the, in the tank that we see all of those visuals, the, the the use of of the religious stuff to me is it, it's interesting because we know from interviews uh, and from you know his writing and all of that stuff that Ken Russell was was Catholic and it's interesting to play that in the back of your head and know that you know Russell was a devout Christian and to have a character who is basically thrown off God. But to use all of this religious symbolism that specifically, I would say, more for for Catholics would really resonate much harder than if this guy just happened to be, you know, like a mainline Protestant. Like, I don't see a lot of – you always see visions and, you know, the – you know, saints appearing in places in the history of, you know, the Catholic faith. So 
so a lot of that stuff in there to me really plays plays into that. And I, I think Russell was kind of tapping that. To me, this is like the devils at times on in in those freakouts and the devils on on just really, really good acid is what it seems like. Yeah, originally this wasn't supposed to be Russell. This was originally Arthur Penn was set to direct. And kind of like Dykstra, he walked at the last minute. And according to Russell's biography, he was one of the multiple choices for director for this. And I don't know if maybe that put him off on the wrong foot with Chayefsky or if it was the. I mean, because really, you've got the character bringing up that he's had these visions when he was younger. So it seems kind of like a perfect match, like you were saying, but I don't know where that contention necessarily came from. And I was really hoping, I mean, this movie, it was a pretty big deal when it came out in 1980. I mean, for me to remember it all the way, you know, back when I think the original commercials were playing this kind of stuff, there's nothing. There's articles that have been written about it, but, and there's, you know, to your point, Scott, as far as old horror magazines, like I was, saw some stuff in uh, like Cinescape or some of these older um, Starlog, those kind of magazines from back then, but nothing really other than about the special effects, nothing about the actual production of the film. And this has one of those bare bones releases like on DVD, on Blu-ray. There's just like, I think on the Blu-ray, the special feature is the, preview and i know you've got the blu-ray scott so please correct me if i'm wrong it, there's nothing it is yeah there's just the the, the, the trailer of, uh, and it was so i was i bought it expecting something i want i wanted to get to know this film because i'd heard so much about it and there were that there was some intrigue behind it and i was just shocked to find out there was nothing really on it very disappointing yeah, even if they did like a little featurette on Russell or on Chayefsky, I mean, this was Chayefsky's first book. He was known more for a screenwriter, playwriter. This was the first and I think only book that he wrote. He died right after the film came out. So you would think they would have at least a little like more about Paddy Chayefsky kind of thing. The thing that also when you talk about the the differences between those two guys – Consider their backgrounds. I mean, Patty Chayefsky was, you know, basically a, you know, a New York, a New Yorker who was, you know, raised in a Jewish family, and then you have this flamboyant British filmmaker who brings this, you know, Catholicism with him. <laughs> so, I mean, it just sort of seems like there's that that just seems ripe for for a battle, you know, in terms of. I, I would think that if, if Patty Chayefsky actually were to direct this thing, it would be a lot more sedate. I mean, it would probably be more akin to, to, to be honest, um, the uh, characterization of the Bob Balaban character, to me, is almost like a stand-in for him, probably. You know, real sort of like level, flat, affect, academic. You know, that that's my perception of him. Versus probably Russell would maybe be a little bit more like the William Hurt character, you know, so they, they work together, but there's, you can tell there's tension in, in where they're standing. I, I think you're right there, Rob, because I feel that if, if it was just Shayevsky, it would just be a lot of sort of Aaron Sorkin, like walking and talking. We do get quite a bit of that, but it's, it's Russell that's, you know, he's able to bring all that symbolism and imagery to it that really kind of wakes up the film. I really love that the first time we see Jessup, he's 
backlit in this hallway. And then we get that same image again uh, at the end of the film. We have this same similar hallway with that transformation scene I was talking about. And then we also get this kind of backlit thing again when he's entering in that cave in Mexico. And that's such a beautiful shot to me to see these silhouettes. It's him and uh, at least two other guys, the Mexican translator who lives with the Indians. And then the, um, the other scientists that he has met down in Mexico and them walking into this cave and just the way that the light outside is so brilliant. And they're coming into this darkness and just, Really, really, I mean, you can't really expect a ugly-looking Ken Russell film. I mean, all of his stuff looked so interesting. I was just surprised there weren't more dicks in it. There might have been. How quick is your eye? Who knows how many subliminal, how much subliminal nudity is in there? I was just re-watching Listomania the other day, and I forgot how many dicks there are in that film. And the music is amazing to me in Altered States as well. Just some of that tribalish kind of uh the almost like the instrument screaming and just some of that when it comes up especially when the uh, the little primeval man comes out of the tank i mean that just really kind of raises the hair on the back of your neck even more than having this little guy running around and you know baring his teeth and growling and everything i mean that music really adds to the whole effect All right, we're going to take a break and play back a pair of interviews, the first with Mr. Bob Balaban and the second with Charles Hayde after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com It's science, bitch. Hello. Hey. I'm Tom. And I'm Matt. And this is It's Science, bitch, or a promo for It's Science, bitch, anyway. We pretty much talk about science and pop culture and what have you in a kind of funny way. If it's geeky and can be linked to science, we'll find a way to get it in there. So you can listen to us on iTunes, where most podcasts live, Stitcher, TuneIn, and you can find us on Twitter at BinaryWomb. Yeah, that's about it. That's about it. Give us a listen. It's science pitch. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot. 
the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Pardon the interruption. I have some news which I believe you will find most interesting. Would you like to hear the latest in Marvel television film, video games, and comic books? Or are you looking for some ideas on what to pick up on New Comic Book Day? Well, join Mike and Eric on Mighty Marvel Geeks every Saturday night on Sorcerer Radio and every Sunday on the Weeby Geeks Network for all things Marvel. There is a matter that requires your attention. Mighty Marvel Geeks. A symbol. All wrapped up here, sir. Will there be anything else? For listeners that don't know, what was kind of the claim to fame for the Balaban clan? Well, I was actually raised in a very sort of average Midwestern, nicely to do family, but um, with very little awareness of being in a show business family, but it was nonetheless, you know, a show business family. My grandmother in 1908 bought a Nickelodeon in Chicago. She and my grandfather and my dad's brothers, who were older than he was, uh, had a little delicatessen in a slum called Maxwell Street, which was kind of the Lower East Side of Chicago. And uh, my grandmother decided to get into the movie business because as a delicatessen owner, she said, the lettuce gets old, you throw it out. With the movie, it gets old, you send it back. And they said you would do one. And there's no credit in their grocery store business, my grandfather was sort of a pushover, and uh, everybody would sort of sign up for the locks or bagels or whatever one bought in those days of the delicatessen. And at the end of the month, he had real trouble collecting because he was a nice man and he didn't like to, you know, didn't like to bother people who didn't have enough money to pay him quickly. So uh, my grandmother also said, uh, in the movie business, there's no credit. You pay a nickel, you go in. It's called a Nickelodeon. There's no debt. Within the next 15 years, they had... 80 picture palaces in and around the Chicago area. It was the largest chain of theaters in the Midwest. In about 1933 or four, I believe, my dad's oldest brother, Barney Balaban, took over Paramount from Adolf Zucker and ran it for about 35 years. With the, your background and everything, did you ever consider anything else but working in entertainment? Well, I never really considered working in entertainment, given that, you know, it really didn't seem an option to me. It was all very distant, uh, Paramount which the studios were in Los Angeles. My uncle Barney lived in New York and Paramount's executive headquarters were always uh, in New York for God knows what reason. I guess they didn't want to be in California. The biggest difference in my life growing up, but the thing that made me the most aware of having a family that was related to show business. And don't forget, it felt like exhibition and distribution and it didn't feel creative because I wasn't around it. Um, but the biggest change in my life because of this was I got to go to all movies for free in Chicago, which was nice. didn't exactly make me think I would run out and start acting in a movie at some point. I always loved pretending. I was a puppeteer from the age of four. I started with hand puppets because they're easier. Grew to marionettes, which do get tangled. That's their main downside. But I loved putting on puppet shows. I wrote them. I performed in them. Sometimes I did away with the puppets and walked into my little puppet stage. I was very small myself 
and uh, perform some of my own avant-garde plays, which of course I had no idea were avant-garde, but looking back on it, they probably were somewhat existentialist, and was always interested in it, but uh, never really thought I'd do anything. I was in the plays at school, etc. Probably thought maybe I would be a writer of some kind, but I did study at Second City in Chicago when I was about 16, I think, and took a wonderful weekly improvisational class for kids, for teenagers, basically, that a woman named Viola Spillin ran. She was basically the mother of improvisational theater. She wrote the book, literally the book, uh, Theater Games, I think it's called. She was Paul Sills' mother and uh, was very much behind the whole improvisation movement, and I was lucky enough and had no idea how sort of seminal this woman's work and teachings were, uh, to have her be my teacher when I was a kid. And it was uh, very formative, I think. Now, I know Chicago is very much a theater town. When did you decide to kind of make that jump from theater into film? Well, Chicago, when I was growing up, there really wasn't much of a theater town. As I left Chicago to go to Colgate University and then NYU, uh, that's when Gary Sinise was starting Steppenwolf and a bunch of other really interesting theater companies were starting up. It always had Goodman Theater, but mostly Chicago was a theater town was known for some really fun dinner theaters, the Ivanhoe Dinner Theater, the Candle Light, I think it was called. Uh, there was a lot of dinner theater, but it was not a sophisticated theater town particularly, except when I left. I don't know if they were waiting for me to leave. I'm not sure, but uh, but that did happen. So I was in after, indirectly because of my experience at Second City, a girl there, a friend of mine, said, well, why don't you audition to be an apprentice in summer stock? which I did. I did not, I never really even knew what some stuff was. But I went with her, I can't remember the name, I wish I could, to Southern Illinois, a place called uh, Guy Little Junior's Theater on the Square in Southern Illinois, and auditioned to be an apprentice, which meant that you paid them like $50 a week and you got to work morning, noon, and night, you know, moving scenery, building props, acting in the children's musicals, and sometimes getting little parts in the regular equity productions. And I did that the summer after my senior year of high school and then went to Colgate University and then transferred to NYU and somehow connived getting an audition in my junior year of college uh, to an off-Broadway musical called You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I was in the original cast playing the part of Linus, the kid, the genius kid with the blanket. And then I didn't decide to be in movies or anything, but because I was in a very successful off-Broadway play, uh, and, you know, all the casting directors come to see it at Marion Darby's office and Juliet Taylor probably specifically, they cover all these things, and I got cast in The Midnight Cowboy and Catch-22, which were my first movies, and I was cast when I was, in, I guess, a senior in college, probably, um, and managed to do those two movies and then have gone on to have whatever my career is. Uh, sort of, that was the taking off place for stuff. When did you get involved in Altered States, and was Ken Russell already on the project when you were attached to it, or no, uh, did he come Altered aboard later? Yeah, no. Altered States was originally uh, directed by Arthur Penn, the wonderful director of Bonnie and Clyde and many other good things. Uh, Arthur was great. He was a good friend of Patty Shayevsky and Howard Gottfried, who was the producer of Altered States. You know, it was a very tight little New York circle of really smart, really wonderful filmmakers and writers and 
and uh, they were all very close with each other. So it was a big rupture when they sort of fired Arthur. For what reasons exactly, I don't know. I know a lot of the production had to be done out of California because it, we did, they didn't, I don't think, had the uh, special effects. In fact, they probably still don't. Uh, in New York, all the master artists of all that sort of stuff uh, seem to be in Los Angeles and California at, at the time. And it's possible that Arthur, who was a very, very dedicated New Yorker, as was Patty, actually, nobody wanted to be in California, as Sidney Lamec was basically in that in that uh, fraternity. Uh, it's possible that Arthur just neglected his, I have to go to California now, <clears throat> to oversee all these complicated effects and production meetings and stuff. I think that's what it had to do with. But whatever it was, they fired him and really wanted to make the movie, had us cast. And the four of us in the cast had already been cast by Arthur, uh, Bill Hurt, Blair Brown, and Charlie Hayden, and myself. And they wanted to keep the cast. And uh, it was relatively close to when we were supposed to make the movie. And they came in and happily announced we found Ken Russell. And he is a genius. I mean, I love him, as, as I probably hope I've said already. But was not used to the kind of community and kind of communal effort that making a movie was for Howard and Patty and would have been for Arthur. And, and uh, this was not something that he felt I don't think he felt comfortable with it, and he got rid of them all as quickly as he could when he started shooting. I mean, he managed to distance himself from them. I shouldn't say he got rid of them. He sort of created circumstances that made them kind of back off. I like the chemistry between the those four main characters. What was that working relationship like with you guys? Well, Bill Hurt, who I had known, I think, you know, peripherally in New York, as we were both sort of young actors in New York, Bill reached out to me when we were cast, and uh, said, let's hang out together because our characters are friends and let's try to be friends. And we were. It was very nice. I enjoyed him. We all got to know each other. And uh, I think that probably added to the feeling of chemistry. Uh, Blair Brown, I also, I don't know if I knew her much, but, you know, also as a New York actor, we all kind of hung out together a bit. You know, nothing extraordinary, but, I mean, we naturally all became friends and are still sort of, we don't, hang out together, particularly because we all live in different places. But I consider Blair and Bill still friends of mine. When I occasionally see them, I'm very happy to see them. And if I were in New York more, we probably would have lunch together once in a while. Charlie Hayden, I liked very much, stayed in California, and I never really got to know him too much. I think there must have been maybe a feeling of us banding together since the production was very fractious, but not in front of us. But, I mean, we knew what was going on. And I think probably that might have aided you know, helped us bond a little bit more. We also had a four-week rehearsal period, which always in theater is definitely one of the ways that actors get to really get to know each other because you're at rehearsal, but then you're having lunch and you're on your way to rehearsal and then you hang out afterwards, as opposed to just being in a movie when you might show up on the first day of work, have a key scene with one of your, the person playing your best friend, you've never met them and you never see them again and you see them you know, a couple of hours a day over a period of months, but it doesn't necessarily become a friendship. Theater kind of breeds that, and the rehearsal period for altered states being a very theater-like rehearsal period, at least consistently did it every day for about a month, probably led to a, this bonding thing, perhaps. And also, we kind of knew that Ken Russell was 
we sensed that he wasn't really going to fit in and what, what's going to happen when Patty's around all the time. Because he wasn't a person who liked to be told what to do or having anybody look over his shoulder. Which they, you know, from his point of view, that's what they were doing. From their point of view, that's what they always did because they were friends and it was a communal event. For Ken, it was the opposite. And we probably sensed that happening and we probably got a little tighter because of, we did feel we were on a bit of a rocky ship. Sometimes that friction, those that butting of heads can just be a terrible thing to be around. And sometimes you can really get some great creative things that come out of it. Do you, what do you feel? Was there half and half or just was no, it I miserable? I don't think or? it helped anything be more creative. I don't think it necessarily hurt it all that much because we weren't around it. It was a very distinct breaking away because on the first day of shooting, I probably described this already. I have this dim memory of telling you things that I don't usually talk about too much, um, but I guess it's okay and everybody's dead now and all that. Yeah, on the first day of shooting, Ken and Patty got into an argument over the fact that we were all pretending to be drunk or in some cases actually drinking uh, during a reunion, my wife being heavily pregnant, maybe eight or nine months pregnant, my movie wife, uh, and it was probably not the right thing to do to be drunk when we were scientists and probably knew that you shouldn't be doing this uh, when your wife was pregnant. And, and there was, you know, we heard that a fight was going on in the trailer and then after lunch, Patty flew back to New York and uh, about eight or nine executives and limousines came to watch what was unfolding, which was really lively and interesting and probably could have been good for the movie, but was not very good for the for the pocketbooks and or or the was wasn't good for the emotional health of the executives probably I would say, and then the movie went on with Patty remaining in New York and us doing the movie in Los Angeles. If there were to be dialogue changes, Patty had to be consulted. He had a drama discount contract, which was rare. I don't think any other writer that I've ever known had the ability to legally not have his words changed or her words changed in the movie, uh, but. But what Patty didn't have was a control of the visuals. So Ken could do whatever he wanted with the visuals. He was very creative. But, uh, you know, some of what he was doing was a kind of a fuck you to Patty. Look, it's my movie. I can do what I want. And uh, some of it was just the fact that Ken had a wonderful, rather outrageous and amazing imagination and uh, didn't feel like being constricted by what Patty wrote in stage directions. So there was a lot of unhappiness on Patty's part from the interesting but very, very not what Patty intended visuals for the movie. I went back and I read a lot of reviews of the film that were written at the time. and it I don't remember. Did it get good or bad reviews? I have no idea. Not too many good ones, a lot of bad ones. Yeah. Uh, a lot of criticism about the speed of the dialogue. And oh, some... really? You, well, did I mention that to you? I can't remember. One of the things that Ken could do was have us talk very quickly I'm not sure if he did it just to annoy Patty, but it certainly annoyed Patty. But I think he felt he was hindered by the words in the movie. Uh, and if he could only obliterate the words, it would be a more visceral, visual experience. And his way of obliterating the words was to encourage everybody to speak at lightning speed if they could. A few years prior, you had been in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was just rife with special effects, and so was Altered States. How was that different for you as far as the experience of working with all those special effects? Well, it was completely different. First of all, in Altered States, I was only involved in a couple of the special effect sequences, um, and somewhat peripherally, so I really didn't live through the tedium of blue screen and endless, you know, 
concern about edges of frames and things. So I really wasn't involved in that too much. And don't forget Altered States, 70% of it took place in the real world. You know, it was only when he started to change and have psychedelic experiences and also literally physically changed Bill Hurt's character that then it became special effects. Close Encounters was living inside of a special effect once we got to the, the area where the mothership was going to land on the top of Devil's Tower. We lived in a studio. We were always in some form of a special effect or not. And also, Close Encounters was definitely Steven Spielberg wrote the movie, directed the movie, produced the movie. It was his concept. And Steven is a wizard at technical things, aside from being a wonderful director of actors and many other things. So there was a very harmonious, it, it may have been lengthy and somewhat boring at, at times, but we were always in a tightly run ship run by a loving, happy director who had written the movie and there was no conflict of any kind during it. You know, Altered States was quite different in terms of the special effects. Patty, I mean, uh, Ken would sometimes get an idea, for instance, to front light something that could only be backlit or the back and vice versa. Bill Hurd had to wear a costume in which you could see his veins kind of pulsating with this kind of colorful blood effect having to do with his DNA transformation, you know, at the molecular level, as I remember it, Jim And I think Dick Smith, combined with another person, Dick Smith did special effects makeup and amazing creations and masks and things for Bill to change into. And some of the stuff was super reflective and it needed lights to be on it, but not behind it. And uh, Ken kind of shot it with whatever way he felt like. uh, And then they had to kind of fix it in post. So that, that wasn't something I experienced, but I heard about it and I knew about it. Um, but it, you know, in some cases, it just made the movie a little more expensive. And maybe Ken was going for a wonderful lighting effect that turned out to be worth it in the end. But in Stephen's case, you know, he was very, he had a plan. He, they had production meetings. Everybody was, everybody was very much together on the same page, special effect-wise. And in Altered States, the special effects were somewhat of a, of a fractured page. Uh, because of having a director who is much more used to his own, I would say, kind of big, though some of Ken's movies were, they were kind of, they were very auteurish, and they were very much more of a kind of off-Broadway experience. This is fun, let's do this now, let's change here, let's go there, which is a wonderful way to make a movie, but doesn't work out well in a movie that has a huge amount of technical effects where everything has to be planned and uh, organized uh, to be efficient and to be effective. You famously kept a diary for Close Encounters. Is that something that you maintained since then? No, no. I would never really do it again for many different reasons. Also, my diary for Close Encounters, sometimes with letters home to my wife, and I extracted you know, some of the material from that. It wasn't all that I wrote it at the time. But really, aside from the fact that really in a movie do you have, is it at the time, anyway, the most successful, you know, financial, financially most successful movie in, in the history of movies. But where would you find Francois Truffaut being the star of the movie? And you got to stand with him all the time. Stephen, this was the second of his big blockbuster movies in a career, as we know, of like, you know, 25 or 30 of them, but seminal to his work. And it was just so interesting, the effects, the 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 success of the movie, the wonderfulness of the movie, 
Yeah, that's unusual. Most movies, there's not really all that much to write about that anybody would want to hear about. And also, I didn't want to ever, ever be known as the actor who was the mole who was writing down everything. So be careful what you say in front of them, or don't invite them to the party because we can't have this. You know, we can't have this written up and uh, you know, in whatever he's doing next. So it really was a once in a lifetime thing for me. Uh, you know, I've written briefly, like I wrote a chapter of a book in a book. I forget what it's called. It's really a fun book written by a wonderful actor, Andrew McCarthy. Does involve does travel books, and he wrote a book about being on location with a movie. And I wrote a chapter about about being on location with the Mexican. And every all everybody wrote a kind of a, a chapter about an interesting experience they had had while being on traveling on a on a movie. But other than that, and I wouldn't consider that about the movie. It was definitely just about me and my travel experience in Mexico, which was interesting and fun, but very, very little about the creative parts of it. I don't want to be known as a spy. Be careful what you say. Balaban's on set today. Yep. I'm curious, did you ever see the parody film Closet Cases of the Nerd Kind? No. Never heard of it. Are are we all in it? Pretty much, yeah. There's a a really good, um, a lot of guys with beards, and yeah. I'll I'll have to send Peter a link. I would enjoy that. I know we were parodied. I've been happy. I love being, I mean, I'm just a small part of these movies, but there were a couple of movies I was in. I'm probably Altered States is probably one of them. And Close Encounters certainly was by Mad Magazine. Was, you know, where they do a whole like graphic novel of the, of the movie with your character. And it's great fun to see. And I think there was one of Altered States, as I remember. Yeah, this was the same guy who made Hardware Wars back, um, mm. the well, Star Wars parody. I've heard of that, but never saw it. Excuse me. I was a scientist before I became a bad actor. I know what that number is. Well, what is it? What is it? It's pi. I guess keeping with sci-fi, I've got one more sci-fi question for you here. How did you decide to play the character that you did in 2010, the year we make contact? I don't really know. What I did do, which I don't always do on things, because it's not necessary and sometimes I don't think you do it. I decided in order to really know a little bit, because, you know, special effects movies aren't always filled with personal detail about their characters. You sort of have to sketch that in. You're kind of more a function of a larger story being told that's usually about a, a machine or a war or a, um, a computer or, you know, it's not necessarily human-based. So I went and I studied with a guy named Joe Olive, I think was his name, his, either, his name was either Joe Green or Joe Olive. My mnemonic device was Olive's were green, but now I can't remember if his name was Joe Green or Joe Olive. He was a scientist at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey. They, his, the unit that he was in had literally invented the transistor, which was about like inventing computers, basically. And um, they were a tremendous hub of computer research. He worked in, my, my friend Joe, who was very helpful, we worked in the field of uh, voice recognition and uh, artificial voices, basically computerized speaking, which that's what Hal is. And I spent a couple of days in New Jersey with Joe and his band of interesting, wonderful scientists and kind of got immersed a little bit in what it would be like if I really were the scientist that I was in 2010 and uh, tried to pick up some stuff. So I got some ideas for, the fact that I wanted a lot of cactuses or growing things in my office or wherever I was, wherever my laboratory was, because my 
character I was studying, Joe, was very not the parody of what you thought a scientist would be. He loved opera. He had actually composed an opera for a computer to sing. He was very creative, and he wasn't just... He wasn't just interested in numbers and math and, and uh, you know, and and being a scientist. It was filled with, he was very interested in the humanities. So a lot of, you know, I studied him, I talked to him, I talked with him, we went around together, and I tried to bring whatever I could to the movie. So maybe that's in the movie, I, I don't know. What was it like working on Bob Roberts? I loved Tim Robbins, he's a friend of mine. The experience was really interesting. It was a little bit improvised, I think, some of the things we did. But, but obviously, there was a very nicely written, effective script. It was fairly quick. We were in Pittsburgh. Susan, Tim's wife, Susan Sarandon, was in Pittsburgh at the same time doing Lorenzo's Oil, a lovely movie with Nick Nolte, I think. And it was kind of family-like because everybody was there. And that's all I remember. I don't remember all that much about it. I was, was not a critical or important part of the movie. But it was fun. I really liked him, and I thought it was a really good movie. And it was fun being in Pittsburgh, although it's way too far away from New York. You think, oh, it's Pennsylvania. We'll just hop in a car and be home in two hours. But Pittsburgh's like an, you know, like an eight-hour driver. So it's really far away. So that was the only part I didn't like. And I think it was very cold, but I'm not sure. Speaking of improv, you've done a lot of films with uh, Christopher Guest. Mm-hmm. How is that? Is that a typical experience for you, being able to improv that much on uh, on screen or is it usually more locked down? Yeah, no, it usually never happens. There are times there are times when you might have a section in in um, Gosford Park, which I produced and was in that Robert Altman directed and produced also. My character was on a telephone a bit of time in the movie and at that point Altman just said, Just make it up, you know, just say stuff you would be just saying to Hollywood when you were calling Hollywood in nineteen thirty two. And I did. And I probably it was fun, and I liked it. And some of it's, you know, for me, for my part, my favorite part of the movie. I mean, of things I was doing, and I really do like doing it. But it almost never happens. I had studied it in. I mean, I studied, as I said, with Viola Spoon at Second City in Chicago when I was a child. But mostly, never got to use it. Sometimes. In a play, I've been in a lot of plays. We do it as a rehearsal technique sometimes, but then it goes away. When I auditioned for the movie The Midnight Cowboy, which is one of the first movies I'd done, my audition literally consisted of, here's John Voight, you're this kid, he's stealing your watch, you've just gone down him in the movie theater, and you want, and you don't want, you don't want him to take your watch because your mother will get really mad because she gave it to you. Uh, he's a hustler on Times Square. And my audition consisted of, I never read the book or the script or anything, just improvise that and it's always been the most fun easiest thing in the world for me to do because we're all on, you're all on the same footing with everybody everybody's just listening and talking and it's very relieving for me to be able to make things up uh, or live through the circumstances I find it easier than the other kind of acting I've always enjoyed it now in Christopher Guest movies there is no, no dialogue written and in some cases, it is a, a nice amount, of, a fair amount of, this is what happens in this scene in the Bible, because it's not a script, it's a kind of a treatment. Um, and sometimes it just says, you know, Bob and Jim and Stuart and Howard are there and Jane, and they're all talking about the show. And that's as much as it says, and we just, they turn the cameras on and we don't rehearse, and we don't make decisions amongst ourselves or say, well, you'll say this, and I'll say this. 
you literally, you know, you're just your character and you're doing whatever occurs to you. It's tremendously fun and exhilarating and sometimes tedious and a little difficult, but for the most part, it's just really fun. And you get to be around these funny, wonderful people. I don't, I consider myself, you know, funny by accident sometimes, you know, like by reacting or what's happening. But I'm not a genius at thinking of funny things to do as some of Chris's entourage without appearing to exert any effort at doing this, just inherently say these amazing, funny, smart, interesting things. And I just kind of stand there and go, oh, okay. Um, well, I'll just have to have a reaction, but I, I can't initiate this exactly. And it's really fun. I adore it. I hope we do more of it. I don't know that we will. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I do like that part of things. You have directed two of my favorite films, Between Parents and My Boyfriend's Back. <laughs> okay, I'm laughing, but yes. What was it like kind of making that transition from to be in the director's chair on those? Well, I enjoyed directing very, very much. Let's just say in Parents, I was making a little independent movie in Canada with nobody watching too much or thinking about it and kind of doing whatever I wanted to do, casting whoever I wanted to cast. And then... My boyfriend's back. I was making a movie for a for Disney, a, you know, a very established Hollywood type studio, which was the opposite in terms of freedom. Uh, but other than that, I had a fun time on both of them. So in, in one I played and was rather inventive and could do what I wanted, and the other one it was very by the numbers. But you know, that's what happens. That's the that's the difference between sometimes working in a studio and working in your own backyard. It's a big difference. What are you working on now? I'm in a play called A Delicate Balance on Broadway with John Lithgow and Glenn Close and Lindsay Duncan and Martha Plimpton and Claire Higgins. It's an Edward Albee play. We close in a month and we're having a great time. We're on Broadway at the Golden Theater now. Um, I've just finished shooting a miniseries as an actor for HBO called Show Me a Hero with Oscar Isaac, Catherine Keener, Alfred Molina, and Peter Reard and some other wonderful people. And I love it. It's for HBO. It'll be on, I guess, in the fall. And I'm hopefully preparing to direct a couple of movies and a TV series and a few other things that I'm working on. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It's a real honor to talk to you. Well, thank you. Great to talk to you, too. He is conducting an experiment into the combined effects of sensory deprivation and hallucinatory drugs. The subject of the experiment is himself. And the experiment is out of control. Ken Russell's Altered States, a film that must not be missed, is in the West End now. Altered States, Certificate X. How did you get into acting? I always kind of liked it. I did a little bit as a kid just up in my hometown. I'm from Palo Alto, California. And, uh, you know, a little theater, stuff like that. But mostly football and drinking beer and stuff like that. And then I was sort of struggling with what my life after I was in uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, I came back and walked into a theater and then never walked out. And I started acting, doing character parts and things like that, Foothill College. Went on to Carnegie Mellon University, uh, was a directing major there, because I really liked directing. And uh, but I kept playing a lot of character parts, and so I kept working as an actor. Very, very lucky. What were some of the, your early roles like? They were mostly things like in musicals and, and classic theater, more, more more like that sort of thing. And then, of course, when I came to uh, Los Angeles, I started working, really knock on wood, never stopped. It was all this character stuff, you know? 
you can look all that stuff up on IMDb because it's all very terrible, all that. But I was working in regional theater as an actor and a director for maybe about four or five years before I came out to L.A. I came out to L.A. and the coattails my wife and kind of jumped up into this. Now, I know with Altered States, there was some difficulty even getting that project off the ground, if memory serves. Well, it was so esoteric, you know. It's so sort of strangely thought of. And I think the fact that Patty, Patty had, you know, done hospital and, and the things that he had done kind of helped to get uh, the Chayefsky were one of the reasons. But, you know, people weren't crazy to do that kind of material. And I think in some strange ways, even less so when Ken Russell came aboard. But Ken Russell was the enfant terrible, as they say, of, of the film business, even then. So it was a, it was a strange combination. And uh, that was proven to be true in many ways because of Mr. Chayefsky's uh, attitude toward Mr. Russell and, and back and forth. It was really kind of a, a strange marriage, to say the very least. So I, that, that, was, that was part of the, the problem, but also... I think United Artists, I forgot who put it out, maybe it was that. And look, it's always a struggle to get any movie made of any consequence, okay? Let's start off right there. You know, they, this, this movie Selma that's out now, you know, that was like, you know, no one wanted to do that until they did, until they made some money with the buck, you know what I mean? And the, I mean, every year, one movie comes along that kind of keeps that sort of thing alive. But it also, in altered states, we were sort of at the, at the height of the sort of, you know, strange psychedelic uh, experience. You know, hippies and Indians and mushrooms and drugs and all that sort of thing. I mean, that was going on all over Los Angeles at the time. I mean, it was the business. It was a business fueled by cocaine. So obviously that was uh, a part of it, you know? Pretty rampant, actually. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there were a lot of strange things even being greenlit at the time. Just like, how did this get made? It got made by, by Peruvian marching powder. It got made by brilliant people thinking they were going to do whatever they were going to do. And some of them, of course, came out great. I mean, like, you know, I love you, Alice B. Toklas. I mean, that was a, you know, Peter Sellers kind of great, great kind of stuff. There's all kinds of stuff. There was one called The Trip, remember? I mean, it's some funny stuff. You know, 1,000 Motel. There was some crazy shit going on. That was the, you know, that was the, kind of the end of the... Uh, of that big experiment. I mean, one of the great, you know, a small group of people made a lot of interesting films in the 70s. Let's put it that way. What was it like working with Ken Russell? Divine madness. You know, I mean, he's, he's absolutely bad as a hatter and always was. But he had, you know, he, he, had, a, he had a vision, he had a view. He uh, was over the top. I was with, you know, the first, the, the first thing that Bill Hurt did, he found Bill. Bill was, you know, a, a maniac at the same time in another way. The material we were doing was so completely weird. So the combination of all of it was quite extraordinary. Although I think that it worked out, as it certainly worked out as a film, sort of a cult classic, if you will, you know? And uh, But I think, but Ken Russell, you know, God bless him. He had made, you, you've seen the, the, the things Ken has done. I became very close to him. I mean, he became you know, a good guy because I, you know, as they say, as a young director and an actor, I wanted what he had. I, I thought his stuff was, I thought his stuff was extraordinary. Starting with the uh, BBC series on composers, you know, and, and the stuff he stuff he made, an amazing imagination, and a career that was brilliant and squandered, like everybody's at some point. It's it's bizarre. 
how that how that happens. You know how for every up there's a down. It's very complicated, and Ken was very complicated. Uh, he also had you know he drank, he drank, he, he drank his entire life. He just was a guy who drank, and uh, that was sometimes in the way back then. Uh, but you know, again, those were the I. We kind of went along with it because it was Ken Russell, and uh, there was all kinds of all kinds of adventure. Let me tell you, you know, some shooting days stranger than others, but it turned out pretty good. The special effects are so cutting edge with that. Did you work with much of the uh, effects kind of stuff? Well, we worked with uh, you know the, those lights that were we were kind of uh, in the uh, laboratory and shining up and all that were all called Farron lights. And there was a guy named uh, uh, Bob Farron who had just invented that sort of high-intensity lighting and, and all that sort of thing. So that was one part of it. It was one of the first uses of a real steady cam in that sequence where the uh, the, the, the monkey gets loose. And, and that the, the monkey was a little a little gymnast from Mexico in a, in a, in a suit. And then uh, it, there was that. And then all those uh, prosthetics, you have to understand, all the prosthetics were all made and then used by, and that was air injection how his arms would ripple and everything like that. And then some of it was just like pure kind of hokey, you know, light show stuff. But it, it, it was very it was very early ahead of its time in that particular way. Now, I know you studied theater, studied directing and all this kind of stuff. How did your method of working kind of differ with some of your coworkers? You said that this was uh, William Hurt's first film. What was his kind of approach to stuff versus yours? Well, it wasn't versus anything. We were all pretty good actors, and we all jumped in. And also, also, you know, we were insisted by both Chayefsky and uh, Ken Russell, both of whom I kept close to, even though they didn't get keep close to each other, was uh, that we rehearsed it every day uh, for three weeks. Every day, twice a day, went through the entire script, line reading, to get, to get the pace. If you notice, it had great pace, you know, also. Uh, all of it was very, you know, as as people talk, we talked, and it had a lot of pace and urgency to it. And I think that was key to what what Ken's idea was. Yeah, it felt like a lot of the reviews at the time almost didn't get that overlapping dialogue, and I was like, "Come on, Altman had been out for years. You know, this is you guys should be used to this." But there were a lot of complaints about the the speed that you guys were working at, which I found very odd. Well, because you know, here's your four movies were sort of show and tell. They were used to that. They weren't used to the, use the camera work the way that that was. Certainly not the lenses. Certainly not a lot of the stuff. It was all sort of abstract. I mean, Ken Russell was operatic. It's like Clive Barker. You know what I mean? He gets out there. These guys get out there and do their stuff. I mean, I did a Clive Barker film, too. Nightbreed, man, which just come out again. And don't miss that. That's been You like that kind of film? Holy mackerel, that is a beautiful movie. That He, he put that thing back together, and they did a, re, did a recut and put it back the way it was supposed to be, and it works in that genre. It's pretty brilliant. Clyde Barker's Nightbreed, and that starts me and David Cronenberg, interestingly enough. I actually saw that one in the theater when it was first out, and I can't wait to see the, the director's cut. Oh, man, see it. Yeah, it's really quite something. Pretty cool. I mean, I've been thinking of going out, you know, uh, people keep asking me about going out to you know, these conventions, because I did do two kind of seminal movies, that one, Culture States and, and Nightbreed, and it's all right in that sort of category, you know, with the sci-fi sort of horror film, whatever that is, stuff. So I might go out and take a look at those things at some point, I don't know. One of the roles that always stands out for me that you did was when you were in Cop. Yeah, 
Whitey. I know that's funny. People always say that. I don't know why they think that. I mean, yeah, it was pretty much a prick, wasn't it? It's an Elroy book, so you know, you're yeah, not well, looking I, for nice characters. No, no, but I mean, I remember that. I, I, I did that. I had a period there where I got to do that. I did, you know, Who'll Stop the Rain, which was a terrific kind of dope deal in part. You know, iconic kind of a part for back in that particular period. But, you know, I just, you know, really, I mean, you kind of enjoy, if you will, playing self-serving assholes, you know. That's kind of what the guy, those guys were, so self-centered. And uh, uh, it's it also, you know, there's a certain intensity, I suppose, to my work back then. Yeah. And and so capped out by Renko, you know. Right. I was just about to ask, were you on Hill Street Blues for the entire run of the series? I was the, I was the original guy. Yeah, I was absolutely. In the very, very beginning. The original cast. I got uh, I got shot in the pilot, and then uh, miraculously got uh, brought back to life because the TV crew ratings were high. I got to come. I got to come back. Now you weren't playing a uh, a zombie or anything. You were just a uh, regular cop. No, no, no. I was. I, they just changed the ending. I didn't get killed. I, was, I got killed, and then I wasn't killed. A miracle. Hey, look it! I was wearing my bulletproof vest the whole time. What do you? That's know? right. Yeah. Two people down, both critical. No, wait a minute. No, they're not. I know that you had done directing of stage and everything, but you were one of the first directors of Cop Rock, one of the notorious oh, yeah. <laughs> shows. <laughs> yes. I, I've right. spoken to, to at least one of the writers of that show, and he's got his own opinions, but what, what's your opinion as far as why did that not succeed? Oh, I don't know. Maybe you could use the word Mike Post, I suppose. I don't know if that would be it. But when, since when does Mike Post have anything to do with rock? I mean, we we knew if in the very first episode we thought, oh shit, he's not really going to do this, and Mike Post is not going to write this music, is he? No, come on, he's just not going to do this, right? Well, he did. Can you imagine what it could have been if it used the people who were happening in the day, the kind of the rock and roll that was going on back then? Holy shit, man! But no, no, we had that. that that's, that's the reason why it didn't succeed. The idea was outlandish, but at least they could have made it like, you know, a little bit interesting. I mean, the, the idea was, okay, fine. But, you know, you can't, you can't have people expect to hear songs like, it's got to be a rough life being a cop's wife and dancing in the kitchen. And dancing in the kitchen. You can't do it. You just can't break <laughs> it a song. I have a reel that I made called The, the Best of Cop Rock, which is a classic. I, it, it, it's just... It, it's scary. I should put it up on YouTube. It's just the worst, scariest shit you've ever seen. And, uh, yeah, I was involved in that. But I was also, you know, I was also working with the man who really gave me my break, Stephen Bochco. So it was great. You know, good, good times. You have done so much directing and acting over the last few years. What have been some of your favorite things that you've done? What are the things that when people say, you know, what should I check out of yours that you immediately point to? Some of the episodes of Nip Tuck, certainly uh, uh, the episode I did of Breaking Bad was the you know second episode of the second season. It was a pretty fierce episode. It's one of my favorite things I ever did, really, where Tuco gets shot, uh, gets killed in that, in that fight and in the car, with that car going up and down at the end. Uh, and that was mine. And the, and the Notorious, everybody knows this, the ringing bell. Ding! You know, that was my episode. So I, I like that. I like that. And a lot of ERs I did. And also I did about 10 pilots, some of which did not go, but I'm very proud of them. I think Murder One was a big highlight for me. And also uh, Buddy Farrell, which I loved. I loved Buddy Farrell. 
So, but you know, I have, I do all kinds of stuff. Like it's hard to, I don't, I'm doing you know, a rock video right now. So I don't know. It's kind of hard to pin down, you know? Who's that for? Oh, it's just for a new band called Resonova. Look them up. It's called Resonova. R-E-Z-A-N-O-V-A. Resonova. And they're on YouTube now. They've got some, they're doing some things, some covers now, but it's pretty, it's a good young band. It's got some backing from pretty, pretty far up the pole. So it's, I'm just doing it, doing it because I like it. What other stuff have you been working on lately? Well, I teach at UCLA. So I, I, uh, I produced a, uh, a film by a, a graduate student in her last year, last summer, which is coming out. And I have a, um, look up a thing called One-Armed Man. I don't know if you've heard of that, but One-Armed Man is a, a, I played the lead in it. Uh, it's a Horton Foot film. It's really good. It, it won about 20 festivals as the best short. I have some stuff I can't talk about, cable stuff that I might be doing. And, uh, my life is good. My life is very, very good. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's 10 o'clock and, uh, I'm going to go off and go down to Palm Springs now. I told my wife and she's probably waiting for me. Altered States is an absolute mirror of its times. It was very daring. It was ostentatious. It was colorful and it was crazy. And it was drug fueled and alcohol fueled and all its psychedelic fueled and mushroom fueled. All the stuff that you're seeing in there was all around us all the time, at the time. People were taking psilocybin at the rap party on the beach at Malibu, watching the Pacific Ocean turn up into a flat, mirrored ball. At least that was my experience. Ha, ha, ha. I'm saying that it was fucking weird. Dude, it was strange times strange times with strange people and colorful stuff and I wouldn't trade it in for anything. And you're talking to a guy who's been sober for 20 years now. But uh, I say, what's that old song? I had my fun. I'll leave it at that. back and we're talking about altered states thanks to bob balaban and charles Hayde for coming on the show and talking about their experiences with the film so gentlemen sensory deprivation we had one film projection booth uh, so far where we had it but it was a much more comedic affair that would be simon featuring uh alan arkin but uh, it's my understanding that uh, mr mike you decided to uh, take on this upon yourself and did you find that you regressed all the way to an amoeba and then uh, had to evolve all the way back to yourself? I had to learn how to say the alphabet again when I came out of the tank. No, I, uh, it was okay. Uh, it costs about 60 bucks to spend an hour in a big tank. It was definitely very different than any of the tanks that were either in Simon or Altered States. It was like this big clamshell kind of thing like uh not like botticelli venus or anything but it just uh, had this big opening that you go in and it had that you know 10 percent solution of magnesium sulfate kind of stuff so you couldn't sink too much you kind of floated on top of the water and yeah it was all right it was i i've spent 
worse ways of spending an hour. So I definitely didn't regress. The one thing that uh, I kept thinking of the whole time while I was doing it was that episode of The Simpsons where Apu had worked for like, I think it was like 96 hours and he thought that he was a hummingbird. For some reason, that kept going through my head. Um, I didn't turn into a hummingbird, though, unfortunately. But uh, it was uh, nice and quiet and I had water in my ear all the next day. So I probably should have worn some earplugs. Hey, hey, you're Abu Nahasapima Petalon, aren't you? I mean, you're the God, you're, you're like the guy. You're a legend around here. Can I ask you, is it true you once worked 96 hours straight? Oh, yes. It was horrible, I tell you. By the end, I thought I was a hummingbird of some kind. So when you went to this place, what did they tell you as, here's the reasons why people do this. These are the benefits. These are the ideas of why they do this. Because, I mean, one could say you might be able to do it uh, in your bathtub at home with the lights out. When I told people that I was going to do this, like my coworkers were like, why are you doing this? Isn't that like going to sleep? Like you close your eyes and you relax. And I'm like, well, there's the whole floating aspect. And it was pretty funny because the website for this place had all this stuff about the sensory deprivation and the flotation therapy is what they call it. And... <laughs> They had this whole thing like what to expect when you show up at the place and they had all this stuff like, you know, get there early because we're going to show you this video and then we're going to walk through this and here's how the tank works. Music's going to play for 10 minutes and then it'll go off and then it'll come back on for five minutes at the end and all this kind of stuff. And I show up and the guy's just like, okay, yeah, tank's in the back. There was no DVD telling me how to do it. He's just like, yeah, all right, go in there. Lights, lights will turn off. And I'm like, so will the music turn off after 10 minutes and all this kind of stuff? Oh, no, no, no. It'll stay on the whole time unless you turn it off. I'm like, okay. I'm like, does the music come on five minutes before, you know, to help awaken me if I'm not, you know, if I've fallen asleep? No, no. Pretty much every just turns on so prepare to be startled is basically what he told me so that also doesn't necessarily lend itself to relaxation when you're just kind of sitting there like at some point these lights are going to turn on and i'm not going to know when it is and i might be startled because then the music will start the motor will start all this stuff is going to happen so i uh, was kind of also living in a little bit of fear of that well, to me, it just sounds like normal life because you never know when something shocking might happen to you. So it just seems like you you gave up uh, regular life with your clothes on for regular life with your clothes off and floating in a big tank of water. And I figured might as well do it for the show. The sacrifices we make, Rob. Yeah, I know. You took me out to dinner once, which is you know complete waste of money. So there you go. Now, you just sound like a very trusting soul to get in a tank with a guy like that hanging around. Well, he seemed like a very disinterested college student more than anything. So I imagine that would be like the perfect job if you're a college student is, you know, mining the sensory deprivation tank. Did you tell him that you are uh, a celebrity and therefore there will be no photos taken of you naked uh, in the tank that could be sold to uh, TMZ or any other outlets? Oh, God, I could only wish that there were naked photos of me floating around on the Internet. In, in were, there senses. Any, were there any zoos nearby? The Detroit Zoo's quite a ways away, so it would have been quite a hike for me to go over and snack on any Thompson gazelles. So in 2004, they tried to do a remake of 
Altered States, and it actually wasn't a remake. It was a sequel, and the script actually is called Altered States 30 Years Later. And it was written by this guy, Fernley Phillips, who I'm sure we're all familiar with because he kind of tore up the world with his first movie that we've all seen, The Number 23, the Joel Schumacher film from 2007. So in 2004, he was working on this script, and it's funny to compare what he did with his Altered States script to The Number 23 because there was all of this gobbledygook numerology kind of stuff in it. And I talked about how they kind of had the schizophrenia thing in the first film. And he really picks up on that in this script for the second film, where it's this whole idea of being able to tune people like they would put these wires into people's ears and they would both be at a particular noise frequency or sine wave frequency and one would be at one level and the other would be at another and combined they would trigger schizophrenic brains into basically being like a normal person like no more hallucinations just you know completely take away the schizophrenia which seems like it would be like that would be the gist of the film but instead this guy is very curious because his dad was a schizophrenic and 23 years after his dad dies he kind of stumbles into this whole thing where he comes upon this unused uh, room at Harvard where it looks like maybe there were some experiments that took place some years ago and there's even this box and it's got a tape and it says Jessup on it and all this kind of stuff and he starts to do these sensory deprivation things new tank I have to say because they, the old one did blow up new tank and he starts putting these wires into his ears and taking himself in and then he meets the hallucinations that his father had and he goes through this whole thing where the hallucinations are talking to him about how to expand his consciousness and every time he comes out of his tank trip he has a new Basically, it's a new superpower. Like, he can read thoughts, he can heal wounds, like, do all this kind of crazy stuff. And eventually, his girlfriend, uh, I think her name is Eve, believe it or not, she gets into this stuff too. And they both start going on these trips. And, you know, I talked about how in the first movie, there's maybe like, what, four times that he goes into the sensory deprivation tank. And in this, it's like every five minutes, they're just constantly going back to, into the tank and describing these other worlds that they're visiting when they're in this tank. I mean, you don't get the mystery of what happens to Jessup when he's in the tank. Instead, you see everything as they're going into these quote-unquote other realms. And it's kind of funny because Mason Parrish is there, the guy that Charles Hade played. He shows up, so I wonder if they were planning on getting him back. And then uh, Emily Jessup comes back, so Blair Brown's character comes back. And Mason is just, you know, constantly poo-pooing this guy and trying to thwart his efforts because he knows how dangerous the sensory deprivation can be. And then Emily's trying to warn them about it. And pretty soon they both take so many trips in this tank, they evolve to be the 23rd 
again with 23, the 23rd century man and who was pictured on the cover of one of their science fiction novels, which is a weird coincidence. And then off they go, these new beings into the ether because they don't even have bodies anymore. That's how far they have evolved. So kind of horse pucky, but, um, and I'm kind of glad that they didn't make it. Yeah, that, that sounds very, very different. And, you know, one of the things that I think so special about Altered States is the attempt to at least tie it into some hard science. And that that sequel seems like it's getting further and further away from actual science. You know what it kind of reminds me of? You were talking about this sequel script is – and I didn't, I didn't see anything but the previews for it. But it almost kind of reminds me of like the uh, Tron Legacy in that the the son kind of goes back and deals with the same thing his father did and all of that stuff. I mean, just from what I remember from the trailer and some of the write-ups, because I didn't see Tron Legacy. But it, it almost kind of seems like he was... It seems like a similar idea, in that he would have the same visions and deal with the same things that his father did. As long as there was no computer-regressed William Hurt, I think I would have been okay with that. So what do you guys think about Altered States? Does the film work for you? It's kind of a hard film to judge in that way because I would say it's a it's it's a very singular vision. And while it is, it, to my mind, couched in these ideas coming out of, like I said, the late 60s and in the 70s in particular ways, you know, and there's references to Timothy Leary and things like that. I still think that there are aspects of the story that that are still contemporary because I think all of us have within us uh, this sort of like search for meaning and, and higher purpose or you know a, a connection to to a bigger idea and for some people that is spirituality that is you know God Jesus you know whatever their thing is and that's what I believe that this film really represents in a lot of ways is that sort of that that quest and how far are you willing to go to to get yourself into these places where you can have this sort of larger connection to something because I, I feel that Hurt's character in the film isn't connected to the outside world so much as he seems to want to connect himself into this inside interior world. Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting film to discuss and I'm not entirely sure how well it holds up. It's fascinating um, but there, there is just something that, that it doesn't quite click for me these days. Uh, it, partially it is Hurt's character. He, he's just so distant and in some ways you know, unlikable, and we just wouldn't see a protagonist like that in a film today. Uh, I don't think, as Rob said, there are a lot of a lot of big ideas here, um, a lot of real big issues. I, I think some of them are dealt with very well. It's fascinating. This search is very, very fascinating. I'm really interested in that component of it. Um, when it starts to sort of spill over into the real world um, and really manifest itself towards the end, and specifically. You know, the the final scene, uh, the, maybe the last 10 minutes or so, it just goes a bit too bonkers for me. And it actually, that doesn't quite work as well as it's supposed to. I do like the way the husband and wife come together, but I don't know that. I think it just went a bit too Ken Russell, <laughs> maybe it may be there. Uh, and that's fine. I mean, I actually think the visuals and special effects hold up very, very well 35 years later. Uh, and, and I am happy Russell um, did this and Dick Smith did the special effects because that all still really uh, works. But it just kind of went a little too bonkers for me. And, and, and maybe that I'm always at a bit of an arm's length from the film because of that. Over the last couple of weeks, I've rewatched this one a couple of times. I've listened to it a few times and then I've 
sat down and watched it a few times, and I have to say the last time that I watched it, it was much easier to watch. I mean, it just kind of, I let it flow over me a little bit and just kind of went with it a little bit more than I had before. I guess I was always kind of looking for meaning in the film the way that Hurt was looking for meaning in life kind of thing. And this time I just kind of enjoyed the visuals to it. And I feel that it it still works, but it definitely is very much a time capsule of that particular era. And it's that weird time of post-Star Wars, early 1980 film. Um, so it's it's interesting to see how that either holds up or doesn't as far as the, I mean, yes, the special effects hold up, but yes, these characters are very, very particular to their time. And perhaps in that academic world, in that sphere, there are still Arthur Rosenbergs and Mason Parrishes and Edward Jessup's around, but um, I, I'm definitely outside of that world. In a sense, it's less dated than, you know, something like a Flatliners was 10 years later. Oh, yeah, definitely. Which is, you know, in, in many ways, there are some parallels there, you know, but that's where, you know, that's how science would be perceived by Hollywood just 10 years later. And it just doesn't, you know, this is a hell of a lot better. Yeah, that one, even though these kids are killing themselves and bringing themselves back, that one felt like it was a lot less uh, scientific method than, you know, poor Jessup, who's ingesting all these drugs and putting himself in this tank. If that felt safer to me than, I don't know, a bunch of, you know, pretty kids out there doing this stuff. Was I the only one who was rooting for Billy Mahoney to just kick Kiefer Sutherland's ass in that film? No. Okay, good. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. So, Rob, you brought up at the very beginning this whole idea of stand-up comedy playing into altered states. And I was curious then, and I'm even more curious now, how do the two things tie together? Well, they tie together through one main guy for me, and then you have to get into where his comedy comes out of. And that guy would be Bill Hicks. And Bill Hicks, over his career, talked about psychedelics. And a lot of his stuff was filtered through stuff that he had read by a guy by the name of Terrence McKenna. But let's talk first about Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks was a stand-up comedian, sadly died about 20 years ago in his early 30s from cancer. And if the, my first experience with Bill Hicks was through Tool because uh, the Inema album has a drawing of Bill Hicks in there and it says Another Dead Hero. And there's several references throughout that record to Bill Hicks stand-up pieces. The idea of Arizona Bay, this big, you know, earthquake that'll push, you know, LA off into the ocean. Um, the idea of, and specifically when we talk about psychedelics, the idea of there's a reference in in the Tool record. I can't remember what what song it is. There's this line about prying open my third eye, and that's a reference to Hicks talking about him and his friends would go out into a ranch or like a desert area in Texas and they would take what Terrence McKenna would describe. He would say, Terrence McKenna described as, as a heroic dose of psilocybin mushrooms, five dried grams of mushrooms. Our third eyes were squeegeed quite cleanly and we would hear God come from inside of us, which is also in altered states where he talks about, you know, we're connecting into this, thing inside of us. God is inside of us. And 
McKenna had done all of this, he was sort of like the next step up from Timothy Leary. Like Leary, and, and this is where I see also in Altered States references to Leary, not only in name, but also in what he was doing, because he was at Harvard and he was doing the experiments into, into LSD. So what McKenna did was he went and he found all of the natural versions of this idea, psilocybin, ayahuasca, which is in South American tribes of this vine that could be made into a paste and then, and then you ingest it that would lead to these hallucinations. And McKenna had written a book called The Archaic Revival in which he talked about how through his research and, and a lot of people say, you know, this is all pseudoscience, but in his research, he was, he was trying to figure out you know, humans having abstract thought, when did this come about, language, symbolism, and all of that. And what he found was that there was a lot of references to cows in those early tribes. And what it was was the people, the nomads, would follow the cows. And his belief was that the mushrooms grew on the cow shit. They ate the mushrooms. This led to psychedelic experiences and early humans, which led to abstract thought, language, art, culture, as we know it. So there's all of this stuff in there. And then you have a, another book that I would recommend that's more of a straight history. It's called Acid Dreams. And it goes all the way from talking about in the medieval times in having these villages that would freak out because they would eat this bread that they didn't know had been infected with a fungus that led to a similar psychedelic experience. And then that was eventually what was synthesized by Dr. Hoffman in Switzerland. He was looking for a cure for migraine headaches and came across LSD. And all of the different you know, ways in which LSD was used, it was used by the, by the government in CIA setting up uh, brothels and in drugging people and seeing how they would work under this. And then also research, which has been in the news recently, that they found that use of psychedelics for people who are alcoholics can help them from relapsing, people who are addicts. So there's all of this interesting sort of history of psychedelics, and then I would advise go and listen to some of the Bill Hicks stand-up. One of my favorites of his is a piece that he talks about positive drug stories on the news. It's like every time you hear an LSD story, it's always some kid jumps off the roof. It's like, what a moron. It's like, why didn't he try and take off from the ground first? And, you know, sort of talking about how these drugs can actually be okay for you. They can actually be a positive thing if done in particular ways. And I had one experience in my youth when I was 21 the first and only time I ever took LSD, where I had some really heavy emotional stuff that was going on at the time. And I took LSD with some friends of mine. And for about two weeks afterward, I felt all of that sort of go. It was all sort of released. It's about the only thing I can really kind of explain it. Um, I don't advise that people go out and take it and things like that. I mean, it's, it's obviously on your own to do whatever you want to do. But I just remember that it was almost like having the reset button hit and all of this stuff that had been locked inside, all of this emotional turmoil that I had been going through at the time, 
it just all seemed to get flushed out of my system in this massive eight-hour hell that I went through in this psychedelic experience. So, so a little bit of uh, a little bit of humor, a little bit of history, and uh, I guess pseudoscience. You have satisfied everything that you brought up at the beginning of the episode. I am very happy. How about a positive LSD story? That would be newsworthy, don't you think? Anybody think that just wants to hear a positive LSD story? Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration, that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There is no such thing as death. Life is only a dream. And we are the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather. No, I just want to say that that final hallway scene, if people uh, know the AHA video for Take On Me, there's a direct <laughs> link between that and that video. Bashing against trying the walls while through. walking down the hallway. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And trying to break <laughs> through in some particular way and do a different membrane, yeah. We're going to take another break and play a clip for next week's show. But I feel this evening is not very clever. It's the very opposite of emptiness. The corny old phrase is the only one I know to say it. My heart is full. With a full heart, with all of it, I thank you. Well, that's the car. What was left of it after the accident, if it was an accident. The car was meant to be a present. Before he changed his mind, Jake Hannaford was going to give it to the young leading actor of his last movie, John Dale. Hannaford's supposed to have saved him, at some earlier date, from committing suicide. Or so the story goes. Most of Hannaford's admirers are certain he did not intend to drive his car off that bridge that night. A corny ending, they say. J.J. Hannaford would never be guilty of that. There are other opinions. John Houston, Peter Bogdanovich, Oya Kodar, Robert Random, Lily Palmer, Edmund O'Brien, Cameron Mitchell, Mercedes McCambridge, Norman Foster, Dennis Hopper, Paul Stewart, Susan Strasberg, Tony O'Selbert, Claude Chabrol, Stefan Audran, Paul Mazursky, Henry Jaglum, George Jessel, John Carroll, Benny Rubin, Peter Jason, Gregory Sierra, Dan Tobin, and Curtis Harrington. That's right. Next month, we are going to do something a little unusual. We're doing a series I would like to call Modi May. Now, the term film Modi has been abused, uh, one meaning from anything like a cursed film, kind of the literal uh, meaning there, to overlooked films. We're going to be using it in a different term. We're going to be saying it as movies you're not allowed to see. We'll be covering four films that have not had their time in the sun when it comes to being released, either wholly or in their original version. First, we're talking about Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. We'll also be discussing Wind Chamberlain's Brand X, Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever, and George Lucas's Star Wars. We hope that folks will be able to listen and enjoy these shows about movies that aren't readily available. What is readily available, though, is Married with Clickers. Now, Scott, tell us about the show and how is it having your wife as your co-host? Well, uh, yeah, Married with Clickers is a show I do do with my wife, Kat, or here in Toronto, and uh, we've been at it for just over four years now. So we got about 200 plus episodes in the can. 
and it's it's actually a lot of fun doing it with her. It's nice for us to, uh, uh, you know, we all watch movies anyway. Now we can watch them and chat about them afterwards and sort of share our views. And, uh, yeah, I think we're sort of the anti-projection booth. We do uh, short shows, very little research, very little work put into it, very little editing. But hopefully there's something for everyone out there. We do discuss uh, every genre, every era. Um, and we can, you know, be found at marriedwithclickers.libson.com. And, uh, yeah, just maybe if folks want to peruse there, see if there's a show that uh, catches their fancy and maybe give us a try. Most of ours are, are under an hour. So you guys don't specialize in any one particular thing? You don't have something that both you and Kat enjoy watching over other types of movies? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. We, you know, we like good movies and we kind of like bad movies too. So uh, we tend to... Just just pick whatever comes to mind. We do do some special, like this May, every May we do a month of disaster films. We call it Armageddon. And uh, so that every May we do a month worth of disaster films. Usually in the summer we cover some bad movies. We call it Cruel Summer. Um, so we have a few thematic things here and there. But overall, it's just whatever's on our mind that week. Well, thanks again, Scott, for coming on the show. And thanks to our special guests, Bob Balaban and Charles Hayde. And hey, thanks for listening. Every week we drop these episodes into the void and wait to hear the feedback from listeners such as you. So if you want to make your voice heard, you can go over to our website, projection-booth.com, and leave some feedback there. And, and then maybe do a favor. Let the world know that we're out here through your social media channels or in, via iTunes. If you're over there on iTunes, feel free to uh, give us uh, maybe a five-star rating, put a review down, because that also helps us. Uh, you know, skywriting, it's a little expensive, but, uh, you know, if uh, money's no object to you, uh, feel free to do that as well and let folks know about it. So, gentlemen, I uh, just want to let you know I'm off to my secret uh, Mayan ritual and uh, was wondering if anyone's seen my iguana. And if you haven't seen my iguana, then um, is uh, Iggy Pop around? Maybe he would like to go. <laughs>
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.